This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 2nd, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to discuss the rise of 19-year-old basketball demigod Zion Williamson. We'll also discuss the legends and the myths of the NFL scouting combine. And finally, we will assess how the spread of the coronavirus will affect sports around the world. And don't panic, we're going to have this conversation in a sane and level-headed manner, at least I will. Joining me in our DC studio is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the book's Word Freak. In a few seconds of panic, don't panic. Stefan. Oh, you didn't tell everybody we're doing this from inside a sealed bubble. The Hang Up and Listen Bunker. How will this affect your favorite sports podcasts? I think we are the boys in the plastic bubble. (laughs) We are. Joining us from Palo Alto, the front lines. It's Slate staff writer and the host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. Good morning. This is why you guys should feel really grateful that I'm not in studio since I am at ground zero of the coronavirus outbreak here in the States. Santa Clara County, what's up? This conversation has just <laughs> taken on a tenor of extraordinary sanity from the very beginning. So tune in for that sanity <laughs> to continue. Before we start the show proper, Stefan, we wanted to give an update on our last segment from last week on Ultra Runner. Jim Walmsley, what happened in the Olympic marathon trials? He did not qualify for the Olympic team. Damn it. I know. Mm. Huge letdown. He might be getting dragged a little bit on Let's Run.com, according to Joseph Bean Khan, who we interviewed on the show last week, who did a Q&A with Walmsley on Sunday. The race was on Saturday, and that will post on uh, Slate on Monday. Walmsley seemed to be in great spirits. He ran a 215 05, finishing 22nd out of something like 300 competitors in the field who had qualified. He was in sort of the second group for the first 12 or 13 miles of the race, 14 miles of the race, and then he fell back. He was really pleased with his performance. He said it was really windy, very hilly. It was the first time he had run a marathon. Classic ultra runner, just making excuses about the conditions. Yeah. He said he wished there were more rocks and gravel and snow and tree branches that would have helped him out a little bit more. But assessing his performance, like he ran a 215 marathon in his first try, what was really interesting to me about the Q&A is the way he talks about the marathon. It's like, yeah, it was kind of fun. It'll get me ready for the 50 and 100 mile road races that I'm going to be doing in a few months. Not sure I want to do this again, but, you know, it was a good warm up for what's coming. Yeah, I mean, Joel, we talked last week about the kind of outlier performances, like if everything goes right, he could qualify, if everything goes wrong. But this just seemed like totally down the middle, like he did well, really respectably for the first time he ran a marathon, finished in like the top 10% of runners and didn't qualify for the Olympics. That seems pretty good. If you were looking in either way for something to be mad about and to make fun of him about, it just didn't quite happen. But what was the tweet that we saw that uh, said something to the effect that, well, we really look forward to him turning it on at mile 80. Uh, so <laughs> He's still running. 
<laughs> yeah, still running. <laughs> he decided to run home from Atlanta to Colorado. The winning time was 209.20. That was Galen Rupp, former Nike Oregon project runner. And Wamsley had something to say about Rupp in that Q&A, too. Not a big fan. A lot of runners, not a big fan of the Nike Oregon project. I just love the idea of this internal marathon, ultra marathon beef that people have. It's a whole world of beef that I was unaware of until now. Now you know. All right, we'll post that Q&A with Wamsley on our show page. On Sunday night in New Orleans, Zion Williamson scored a career high. It's been a short career, but a career high 35 points in 33 minutes in the Pelicans' 122-114 to 114 loss to the Lakers. The Lakers have LeBron James. LeBron James is very good. LeBron James was better than very good on Sunday. He played unbelievably well. But forget about LeBron. He's been around for a long time. Back to Zion. He's now scored more than 20 points in 11 straight games. That is a record for a teenager. In the first 15 games of his career, which are also his first 15 games after returning from knee surgery, he's averaging 24 points in just 29 minutes per outing. There are a lot more numbers we could toss around, all of which make it very clear that Zion is a generational talent. But for the NBA, he's something more than that. He is a generational personality, Joel. He's someone you want to watch and talk about. And so here we are. We're watching him and we're talking about him. What are your thoughts on Zion, either on the game on Sunday or just more broadly? There's a couple things that come to mind. I think it's a testament to Zion's talent and accomplishment so far that LeBron was as locked in as he was last night, that he clearly has LeBron's attention. Not that it's unusual for LeBron to play great, but LeBron had a triple-double and was engaged and intense in a way that you don't normally see at like game 57 or whatever it is of the regular season. Yeah, it's a great point. And Anthony Davis also wasn't playing for the Lakers, so LeBron had to right. play at like peak, peak LeBron in order for the Lakers to beat a Pelicans team that's playing really well. Right. A team that's in the running for the eighth playoff spot, but that doesn't tell the true story of how well the Pelicans have played over like the last 20 to 30 games. And the other piece of it is that I'm just reminded that Zion is such a magnetic, charismatic personality that he was a dude that got me to root for Duke last year and got a lot of other people that are not necessarily Duke fans to root for Duke and that people want to see him and they want to see him succeed. And I wonder how long that's going to last because at some point everybody goes through the rising star, star, then sort of anti-hero story arc. And that'll happen for Zion at some point. But right now he's just a fascinating, charismatic, just a good dude, seemingly, at least from a distance. I believe the NBA wouldn't have had the ratings concerns and all these other things that people have been talking about over this season if he had been playing from game one. I'm going to push back a little on the charismatic part. He is an incredibly magnetic talent, and people want to watch him because he is so great and so different on the court. As a marketing star or as a media personality, he's nowhere near that yet. He is very, very really? young. I no, think I like, disagree. Really watching yeah. him talk, I mean, he seems very naive and very sincere and very sweet and very genuine. Marketers hate sweetness and genuineness. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm just saying he's not super interesting as a person yet. You can see those flashes of youth that he is predominantly a young kid that says very anodyne things right now. You know, he said about 
playing against LeBron James for the first time. It was a great experience. He's an incredible player. His resume speaks for itself. I hate it when I make mistakes. He talked about the standard he holds himself to. Those are all nice things to say, but it's not like I'm watching Zion Williamson because I want to see what he's going to say after the game or if he's going to do something interesting on social media. It's that he's fucking unbelievable on the basketball court. You have a kind of bizarre understanding of what it takes to be a marketing behemoth. And also like reading what he says on the page does not, fairly kind of represent what it's like to watch him and listen to him on the court. Yes. You're kind of naturally drawn to him. He seems like a genuinely nice yes. and good person that everyone Absolutely. loves. He has a great kind of spirit around him. And marketing, whether it's people receiving marketing or people that are marketers, they don't want people who are expressing complex ideas. Like, was Michael Jordan particularly well-known for being nuanced and interesting? No, he was known for being graceful and amazing to watch on the court. And off the court, you know, Madison Avenue projected all sure. these ideas onto him. And Zion, based on what you've described, is essentially like a blank slate. And we can just like project all of our like good feelings on him because he just does seem like such a benevolent presence. I think that's fair enough. That's a good argument, Josh. Thank you. <laughs> Seeing Josh defensive, of course, it's, you know, about a New Orleans uh, <laughs> sports star. Pesca actually was messaging me last night and saying, it's funny that the Pelicans are your favorite NBA team and Duke is your least favorite college team, which is accurate. <laughs> and the Pelicans are essentially Duke. You know, they've got J.J. Redick, Zion, Brandon Ingram, Frank Jackson, Jalil Okafor. It's like the entire roster is Duke players. So it's really the jersey and Krzyzewski that you hate. Yeah, that's a good argument from you. And their fans. And their fans. And their fans. Yeah. Um, but back to LeBron, I mean, it was weird, the run-up to the game. Yeah, it was. It was, you know, LeBron made a point of saying last week, I've never met him. I've never met him before. Never. Never had a conversation <laughs> with him. Never, never met him never, before. Never. Never. That was just kind of bizarre because he has gone out of his way to heap praise on other young players in the league. You know, he was on the court hugging John Morant the other night, whispering in his ear, telling him, I'll do anything for you on or off the court, whatever you need, being that real mentor or father figure. And you didn't see that before last night after the game when he and Zion did talk on the court. And it made me wonder, Joel, I mean, LeBron's a competitive dude. This is a player that can compete with him and potentially, and maybe this goes back to what you were saying at the beginning, that maybe this is why LeBron really showed out on Sunday night. I think there is a piece of that. And I, I recall Michael Jordan's speech you know, about Kobe Bryant during the memorial about how Kobe annoyed him at first um, because he was so clearly not a threat, but that he was so clearly trying to imitate him. And I wonder if there's sort of a similar dynamic here in that Bron looks at Zion, a guy who's basically just out of high school, a basically unprecedented athlete, dominant from the start, and has this charisma that we've all agreed now that he possesses. And he looks at him and says, wow, that guy, he's already a threat. Looking at the game last night, it was clear that the two best players on the floor were LeBron and Zion. And normally, nobody could have expected a 19-year-old to be that good in a high-level NBA game already. And so I wonder if that's some of that. But I also thought about something else. So I remember last year when Zion and Duke played against Virginia and LeBron, and I can't remember if it was Maverick Carter or Rich Paul who were in the stands that mm -hmm. night. And, you know, it seemed like, oh, well, if Zion declares for the pros or declares for the NBA at the end of this year, 
there's a real shot that he might sign with Rich Paul and Clutch Sports Agency. And I wonder if LeBron is being really careful around that because there's all this talk about him being sort of the secretive hand behind the Clutch Sports Agency. And so that he's going in the opposite direction to say, hey, I don't have a relationship with that guy at all. I don't know anything about him. I just wonder if that's sort of what undergirds this like awkwardness that they seem to have publicly. And there might have been two other things. One is Zion Rather did sign with Nike, but he signed with the Jordan brand. So he's not wearing LeBron shoes. And the other part of this that I thought was interesting is that, is that I wonder whether LeBron was waiting for Zion to reach out to him. He made a comment to ESPN, LeBron did, saying that he has an open door policy. And clearly Zion hadn't knocked on that door. Yeah, and I think LeBron is compared to the superstars of previous generations way more open to mentorship and friendship with younger players, whether it's John Morant or anybody else. And LeBron also, by comparison with whether it's Jordan or anybody else, is, I think, way more complimentary of younger players, including Zion. It's not like he's ever said anything negative about Zion. It's just more that it does seem like maybe Zion, for whatever reason, hasn't taken advantage of the LeBron James open door policy for young NBA players. But I want to get back a little bit to this idea of Zion's charisma, because when LeBron talks about the NBA being in good hands with young players, he mentions the following. Zion, John Morant, Trey Young, Luka Doncic, Jason Tatum, and he also has mentioned Donovan Mitchell sometimes. I think out of that group, Luka Doncic is the best player at this point and has the best kind of accomplishments on the court. Zion is by far and away, I think, the biggest draw and attraction and player of interest to kind of casual fans. And I think you could even throw in Giannis there. And Giannis is the best player in the NBA, maybe the best kind of physical specimen in the history of basketball. And he is and should be appointment television. And yet I still think there's more interest in Zion than even in Giannis. And I'm curious, Joel, A, do you agree with that? And B, why do you think that is? That's really tough. The thing about Zion, the advantage that he has that not a lot of other players had, including Luca, is that we saw him three or four years ago when he was a high schooler in South Carolina. I had heard of Zion Williamson when he was dunking on private school kids in Spartansburg, you know? And so we got familiar with him and his game at a very young undefined raw age. And so that helped to build some of the anticipation around him. Not only did he live up to expectations, he surpassed them. Right. I mean, going into Duke, R.J. Barrett was the presumptive number one pick in the draft. Right. I mean, and I don't have to look back at the old pre-draft rankings for that year before they even went into their freshman year. I'm not even sure that Zion was a top five you know, prospect at that point, because the concern was, well, he's not really that tall. He's not long. He didn't have a jump shot that anybody respected at that point. So there was a lot of holes in supposed defects in his game that wouldn't necessarily translate. And then he dominated college basketball. And it reminds me that RJ Barrett shot too damn much last year. And already in the NBA, he has shown to be the best teenager in the history of the NBA. And that's just like fascinating in a way that maybe Luca isn't, who we're just now getting familiar with. He plays in a market that is a big media market. But even when the Mavericks won the NBA championship, it's not like they captivated the NBA. Yeah, but I mean, Luca's doing things at his age that nobody else has ever done, putting up 
triple doubles. The Mavericks, by some measures, have the greatest offense in NBA history. Yeah. This year, he's unbelievably good. And New Orleans is, you know, the kind of definitional small market. I mean, I think the simplest explanation, Stefan, is that Zion's really good at dunking. Yeah. It's maybe not why everyone is so as obsessed with him, but that's kind of what got him on the radar. And he just creates these highlights that are better than like any individual Luka Doncic highlight. If you watch the <laughs> entire Mavericks game, which like how many of us are going to do like NBA ratings are down. Like people consume sports increasingly through highlights and Zion creates the best highlights and has created the best highlights as Joel said for years. Right. So what do you want to watch? Luca hitting a 38 footer over some guy or Zion, you know, nearly bringing down the backboard, um, Zion nearly bringing down the backboard. <laughs> I mean, and back to your point, Joel, about, you know, why wasn't Zion rated higher in high school? I mean, it could have been a combination of those things you mentioned. And he's got that awkward running style, that weird gait. Maybe people look at him and think this isn't going to translate to the highest level of basketball. And then his shoe exploding at Duke, I think, also helped to sort of solidify our impression of him as this Hulk-like creature like blowing out of his clothing. He is so strong. I was reading a piece in the New York Times by Jerry Longman from a couple of weeks ago that talked about the risks to Zion and his knees and the concerns about his biomechanics. And there was one paragraph in there about how a sports performance company had tested Zion while he was in high school using a ballistic jumping drill that roughly mimics <laughs> rebounding and Longman writes, the force that Williamson exerted into the ground, the doctor who tested him said, was greater than for any NBA player or other professional athlete that his company had tested. Like, this is a superhuman human. Yeah. I mean, the only person, and Doris Burke mentioned this in the broadcast on ESPN on Sunday, the only player he's gone up against that could stand up to him physically is Giannis. And Zion had the poorest shooting game that he's had against the Bucs. He did rip the ball away from Giannis once, but... That was um, a good highlight. That was a good highlight. But kind of on balance throughout the whole game, Giannis dominated him physically in the way that Zion dominates everyone else physically, which again, just like points up to me that Giannis is, you know, he's the reigning MVP. He has the amazing nickname... I think he's generally appreciated. It's understood how amazing he is. And yet maybe it's less about we should appreciate Giannis more and more just like this is an indication of how mythic Zion is that like even in the face of all of this, he still kind of stands alone as the most charismatic and dynamic NBA player prospect since LeBron. Yeah. And it's sort of terrifying to think, you know, we're only about 20 games into his NBA career. Actually, what, 15? And we have a lot more to go. And there was a moment last night at the end of the game after the LeBron meeting he had where he took his jersey off, gave it to JaVale McGee. And I'm a 41-year-old man. I shouldn't say this about anybody, but I noticed he was soft. He was a little soft in his torso. I was just thinking when Zion is able to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on his own body and go through professional training – his body's going to look totally different. It'll be amazing to think about what kind of athlete he will be. We've seen Giannis. Giannis is at the height of, you know, athleticism in the NBA. But when Zion has a chance to go through that sort of training, how terrifying he's going to be. And uh, he didn't ask for JaVale's jersey. Right. He gave his jersey to JaVale like a fan. It was a one-way exchange. It is pretty <laughs> great that NBA players are routinely exchanging jerseys now. Yeah. 
I love that. Yeah. Soccer. Yeah. Come to America. One last thing is that um, LeBron actually guarded Zion at the very end of the game. He didn't throughout. And Zion kind of flipped in a little short jumper over him. But it seemed like if LeBron had been guarding Zion the whole game, Zion maybe would have had a little bit of trouble as opposed to how he was kind of messing around with Kyle Kuzma. Maybe it was just being smart because it was only LeBron and no Anthony Davis and they wanted to preserve his body. But that is also just kind of a concession that like, all right, even LeBron's not going to be able to withhold right. the wear and tear of guarding Zion Williamson the whole game. Right. It's not worth it long term <laughs> for the season. If he needs to guard him, maybe in the playoffs. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Some call it the Underwear Olympics. Others, including my wife, think through the lens of America's racial history and call it something much more uncomfortable that I'll mention if you ever catch me in private. Just think about the visual dynamics here, mostly white male executives closely inspecting the bodies of young black men, considering who they'll buy. Anyway, the NFL's annual draft combine came to a close Sunday in Indianapolis. It was a semi-official start of the pre-draft season, where teams look for reasons to talk themselves out of Lamar Jackson and into Josh Allen. There's the short shuttle, the vertical jump, the broad jump, the three-cone drill, the 225-pound bench press, the 40-yard dash, and a variety of positional drills. There's also lots of other boring but important stuff we don't necessarily see on television, including team interviews, medical exams, and measurements. In fact, I knew the silly season really got its start when the draft's presumptive number one pick, quarterback Joe Burrow of LSU, jokingly tweeted about retiring following the results of his hand measurement, which apparently was suboptimal at only nine inches finger to thumb. And as Wall Street Journal's Jason Gay pointed out, Burrow's hands are a half inch smaller than last year's number one pick, Kyler Murray, and a quarter inch smaller than the previous number one, Baker Mayfield. Stefan, as a former NFL player yourself, do you think Burrow will somehow manage to become a decent NFL QB despite having hands the size of a civilian's? I wore size six cleats in my summer in Denver, just for the record, and I have eight and a quarter inch hands. Um, but I really jammed my foot. I don't really have size six feet. My shoes are size nine. I don't think hand size really matters. Um, I think that's been effectively proven by others' studies results. But it's classic combine material. We've talked about this on this program before. I think we even measured our hands one year, Josh. We did. Yeah. And it's perfect combine material. This is absolute silly season. And we can talk about the efficacy, the utility of the combine and whether this matters at all in evaluating NFL prospects. Ultimately, you have to go into discussing and watching the combine, understanding that this is programming more than anything else. The NFL has realized that people will watch these amazing athletes run 40 yards and do shuttle drills and bench press 225 pounds. So I think it's really easy to mock the league for this hand size thing. And in fairness, like Adam Schefter, who, if anyone is kind of the official organ of the NFL media, it's him. Like he was reporting that there were concerns about, about Burroughs hand size. But as you noted, Joel, the 
guys who were the top picks in the last couple of drafts, Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield, had relatively small hands. And so we're kind of mocking them, but it doesn't even seem like NFL executives take this very seriously. And so I think there is maybe a tendency for us to think that NFL decision makers are dumber than they actually are. And maybe there's a tendency of the NFL media to think that NFL executives are dumber than they actually are. But if you like actually read this long piece that Dave Fleming did for ESPN on the myth of quarterback hand size, there's a different phenomenon that I wanted to talk about, which is the lead of the story is this quarterback, Brandon Allen, who had like even smaller hands than Joe Burrow. He was in the eights. It was embarrassing. And then he talked about, Allen did, getting like massage therapy so he could like stretch his hands out further. And this is a phenomenon of teaching to the test. It is doing specific training, whether it's for the 40-yard dash or the bench press, or in this case, something as idiotic as measuring your hand, things that have no relation at all to how you do on the field and how you play as a quarterback. And yet there is this kind of social pressure to get massage therapy on your hand so it like appears more normal. And so the point I'm trying to make is that when you make these measurements as important as they've become, then you start doing specific training to get specific scores. And it really has nothing at all to do with how you played in college or how you'll play in the NFL. And so that, I think, is the risk that the NFL is taking here by making the combine so important. Right. Well, the NFL is building on its own image and reputation for thoroughness. Right. We need to know every measurable about every potential employee and that includes hand size and and whatever other slave-like measurements, proportional representations of these future employees that we want to take at this auction. And that's what's gross about it. You know, the NFL wants us to believe that all of this is important and wants us to see all of it so that we can pretend we're evaluating these players as well. If you go back, and I was reading a piece uh, on ESPN about how Mike Mamula was sort of one of the first people to game the system by preparing. This is 1995, Mike Mamula, defensive end out of Boston College, who ended up being a first-round draft pick by the Philadelphia Eagles. And he got drafted very high because he was one of the first people that was a breakout combine star. And he you know, had a 38.5-inch vertical, 26 reps on 225-pound bench press, had a Wonderlick score of 49, you know, I think ran a 4.58. Uh, he did all these things that at the time seemed really incredible, and he had figured out on how to game the system. So at this point, 25 years later, I think the value of the combine is that it's a job interview. And as much as anything else, NFL teams just want to see, hey, did you prepare? Are you going to take it seriously? At this point, the median NFL player is so much more athletic and faster, stronger, smarter, better at all this stuff and better prepared than they were in the past. And so if you fall outside of that norm, that's what they need to know. That's what they want to find out. They may not think of it in that way, but for the NFL now, I think that's sort of the value. And Josh, isn't it also true that they've already got 
so much film, so much data, so much information about players. It's not like this is really necessary. It's helpful, as you said, Joel, as a sort of job interview, as a way to bring all these players together in one place. But in terms of the data, they could get that in other ways from their college coaches, from the training facilities they go to. There's a lot of numbers out there about these athletes and a lot of the studies of combine value have demonstrated that the most predictive part of success in the NFL is success at the college level. Sure. I mean, it is useful just to have everybody in the same place at just more efficient that way rather than having to go to all these different guys pro days. And I understand why teams would want to see stuff for themselves rather than thinking that, you know, guys would like game the system with these numbers if they were just reporting them on their own. But back to that Mike Mabula story, which was really good, I thought, and the story on hand size, both of these were ESPN stories. Just ESPN, I'm going to make a incredibly a new and brave point here. ESPN is really big in sports media. They kind of control a lot of the narratives that are dispensed. And so on one hand, you have Adam Schefter, who's behind this report about Joe Burrow and his hands. That's like leading on ESPN.com. It's on all of like the ESPN shows. And you have these like really smart features, like a lot of the background reading that I think we all did about whether it's combine myths or what combine things to take seriously. That's all produced by ESPN too. But it's like the one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. And it seems like it's intentional. So to speak. So to speak. Because if every ESPN piece or every like TV story that was done was like, also layered with the kind of statistical overviews and the like more sanity inducing stuff about here's the stuff that actually matters. Here's the stuff you need to know. Here's what history says. Then just like a lot of these reports that draw the most interest and are the most salacious would just get totally deflated. Well, there wouldn't be a place for someone to say on television, we have found a flaw in Joe Burrow before the combine really gets underway which is what Adam Schefter said about his nine-inch hands. Probably a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but he still said it. You know, the one thing about it is that it is really good television. Like, I mean, it is really good theater. I know that the combine is stupid. We've talked about the reasons that, you know, the drills don't necessarily translate into anything approximating what you're going to be doing in the NFL. But you're watching a six-foot-three, 239-pound linebacker run 4.39 seconds it's unbelievable. Other than the Olympics, this is probably the event where sprinting gets like the most pub. Yeah. This is oh, like made for you. Yeah. I was thinking about, so they used to be the superstars that used to run on ABC. Yes. It was off I wrote season. that in my notes. This would be better if it were the superstars. I would love yeah, to see this is, This reminds run. me of. Yeah, I would too. I would too. Who do you think would win in a race between like Al Green, Prince? <laughs> like who would be Prince. the fastest of our kind of like R&B and soul superstars? Be really out of character for them to be sprinting. I mean, James Brown was in pretty peak physical condition. Yeah, we know that Prince is a good basketball player, according to Rick James via Dave Chappelle. Yeah. And he was the sixth man on his high school basketball hmm. team. So he made me a sneaky good athlete. Anyway, back to the show. So this is the moment when sprinting really gets its time in no, the you, spotlight. You were very excited about that, Joel. You tweeted about this guy, Kenneth Murray of Missouri City, Texas. You were very happy about that. My hood, that's right. Yeah, I mean, he's 230-something pounds, ran a 4.52. It's just fascinating to look at all these guys that I've been looking at in jerseys and uniforms for the last three to four years 
you know that they're good. You can watch them play, but it's another thing to see them stripped of all the uniform and just see how amazingly athletic they are. There were 10 linebackers that ran four, five, nine or faster at the combine. When I was growing up, linebackers looked like, you know, Bobby Knight, you know what I mean? (laughs) Or something like that. Like they were still great athletes, but Michael Singletary doesn't look anything like what Isaiah Simmons looks like. We can see the evolution of the athlete, the NFL combine in ways that may not be apparent on the field. That's what I just think is amazing. Watching all these guys. They had a 360-pound dude run a 5-1 in the 40 this weekend, you know? Kai Becton. Give the guy some some love. 364. There's always the, like, breakout combine superstar, whether it's Henry Ruggs running in the (sighs) 4-2s or a big guy like Becton running faster than somebody who is that large should be able to run. And that's interesting. The other thing about the combine that's fun, because it's entertainment, is... You know, you're introduced to a name like Javelin Guidry. <laughs> yeah. I ran a 4-3, living up to his name. Twice. Or that you mentioned Henry Ruggs, this viral video of him playing basketball in high school starts to circulate. Why would somebody who runs fast and is named Javelin live up to his name? No, Javelin, you throw that thing hard. It's like, yeah. a, it's a, it's a, Athleticism. It's like an arrow going through the air. Joel I got it. Yeah, he got it. It would make sense if he had a really good broad jump. But the thing that I found most useful and everything that I read on the Combine and its efficacy was written by Brian Burke, again on ESPN. Brian Burke, who is the creator of the Fourth Down Bot, among other things, one of their analytics guys, wrote about how he thinks the Combine is actually undervalued by a lot of evaluators. And he made the really good point that there's something called Burkson's paradox. And the example that's often cited is that if you are dating people that are some minimal combination of being attractive and having a nice personality. I'm I'm quoting from him here. The paradox helps explain why the ones with the best personalities don't appear so attractive and the attractive ones don't always seem so pleasant. And the way that manifests itself in the combine is that the guys that get invited and don't run very fast, the reason that they're invited is because they're really good at football he cites somebody like Anquan Bolden, who ran the slowest 40-yard dash time of any receiver the year. He came out 4.72 and had an amazing NFL career because he was really good at the things that aren't measured by a test, whether that's something like route running or um, just having a really great understanding of the game. But basically, Joel, if you get invited to this, that means you have a really good college career. It's almost like if you don't show out at the combine, you should like take a closer look. It's like, okay, then why are you so good as a player? Like, what are we not seeing? You think about a guy like AJ Dillon, a running back from Boston College, who had a very good college career, but sort of has been under the radar and hasn't, you know, quite been considered one of the top running backs in the draft. And then you see he's this fantastic athlete, and you're like, oh, wow. He was 247 pounds and ran a 4'4. And had all these other great testing results. And you're like, oh, that explains a lot of it. So I think it works in all sorts of ways. It explains why some guys were good in some ways. You know, guys that don't perform well, like you say, you can go and look and see, okay, there must be something else that we're missing, whether they have a great grasp of the game. They were put in a position by their coaches that helped them to excel. There's also that. So you learn a lot about it, I think. I think I think the combine is valuable. I understand why people think it's silly, but I think that you can actually take a lot from it and extrapolate a, a lot, maybe not a lot, but at least a little going forward in the NFL. Right, career. and we just don't know how much front offices actually invest 
in combine results in terms of making decisions. There have been a lot of studies about the efficacy of the particular drills and the combine overall for more than a decade now. I was surprised at how much uh, analysis there had been. And I think one of the studies, the most comprehensive one, concluded that, yeah, about 20 to 25 percent predictive ability. So there is some value there. Um, in terms of performance. And that's if you combine the results in a bunch of, of right. different drills, right. not exactly. looking at one in like particular. Some drills are completely useless, like the shuttle drill doesn't predict anything, um, but other drills are more valuable. And like, let's not overlook that ultimately, a lot of the combine is just fun. Like watching that punter, the jacked punter, I'm obsessed. This is your favorite guy. My favorite guy. I love this guy. Uh, Michael Turk. Arizona State. He's coming out early to go into the NFL. He's a punter. Punters don't often get drafted at all. 25 reps of uh, 225 in the bench press. So if he ever gets like trapped under a bunch of rocks, <laughs> as punters often do, yes. he's going to yeah. be able to get out. <laughs> the video of the punter, of the jacked punter, lifting those 25, everyone's cheering him on. There's a lot of camaraderie, a lot of bonding there. Everyone loves a jacked punter. It's not he just he outlifted Jadavian Clowney, which I mean, you know, yes. absurd to think about, but yeah. <laughs> he lifted more than 21 of 23 running backs, 25 of 27 linebackers, 21 of 38 defensive linemen, and 19 of 39 offensive linemen. Maybe the punter shouldn't be punting. <laughs> All right. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about whether Tom Brady really, truly is going to play for a non-Patriots football entity next season. It could happen. And if you want to hear us talk about it and you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up. It's just $35 for the first year at slate.com slash hangup plus. In less than five months, thousands of athletes and tens of thousands of spectators, reporters, and rich dudes in blue blazers are scheduled to gather in Japan for the 2020 Summer Olympics. Five months is a long time, but also not, especially when the spread of the coronavirus has effectively shut down sports in Japan. The Tokyo Marathon on Sunday was limited to elite runners, not the usual horde of 40,000 or so. Preseason baseball games were played in empty stadiums. Japan's top soccer league canceled 94 matches through March 15th. And the Grand Sumo Tournament scheduled to start next Sunday, will be held without spectators. Publicly, the International Olympic Committee last week said what you'd expect. Preparations continue as planned, totally normal to consult with World Health Organizations, nothing to see here. Privately, the sportocrats are no doubt sweating through their ascots. Josh, when we're talking about a global pandemic, sports should be the last of our concerns, possibly. But then you realize that it's like a bellwether. If people can't gather to watch sumo, things must be really bad. Yeah, and large public gatherings are the thing that it makes sense to try to curtail. If Even though there's scientific evidence that it's not the large gatherings that are really the problem. What is? just being in much closer contact than sitting next to someone in a stadium, apparently, according to some doctors that were quoted in a Wall Street Journal piece. So in a large gathering, you will have lots of people sitting in close proximity to each other. And I think you're right to describe it as a bellwether because sports take themselves very seriously and we take sports very seriously. And it's considered almost like absurd to imagine canceling a game under any circumstances. Like after Kobe Bryant's death, when so many players were so clearly 
affected by it, the games must go on, right? And it's just not in anyone's, uh, you know, first order or second order thinking that cancellation is is a thing to do. And so when it starts happening, you know, in the top division in Italian soccer, canceling a game between Juventus and Inter Milan, like that's a huge deal in Italy. And so it's something, you know, to monitor in North America and to see when and if we start to see cancellations or serious talk of them, then we'll know that we've entered uh, either a new phase with the virus or a new phase in terms of um, how seriously we're taking it as a society. Yeah, I just think we're trying to get a sense for who's going to be the first person to sort of pull the trigger or like with the first the first big domino to fall. And, you know, speaking like personally, there's somebody that, you know, is supposed to be going to South by Southwest in Austin in a couple of weeks. Right. And we saw Sunday night, you know, I'm sitting there looking at Twitter and I see that Jack Dorsey is pulling out of South by Southwest. Twitter house is going to be closed at South by Southwest, which is something I don't know what the hell it is. It sounds amazing, but <laughs> apparently it's going to be a thing there. Yeah, I, I like Twitter. I'm like a lot of people. But, you know, you get a sense that, OK, it is getting serious, but we'll know how serious it is when the first big games, the first big events get called off. And like the idea that we're even having a conversation about the Olympics being canceled is almost so surreal that you can't wrap your head around it. Right. So. Yeah, I think I'm just waiting to see who's going to be that one. And it is worth noting that we have sort of been through this before. And in fact, I was in Baltimore when they canceled the Orioles games in the wake of the the riots after the Freddie Gray death. They had that game that they played before nobody at Arts between the Chicago White Sox. And it was just a very weird... I don't know how many sports teams would be willing to do that or how many sports leagues would be willing to go through something like that. Well, if you look at the rest of the world, I mean, it's already happening. There have been... Basically, sports in China and Japan are shut down at this point. Um, There's a moto race in Qatar that's been called off because a lot of those teams that compete there are Italian. Um, The uh, Paris Marathon on Sunday was canceled. Um, Soccer matches in South Korea have also been called off. A road race in the United Arab Emirates canceled. The Giro d'Italia up in the air Tennis events canceled in Italy and China. The badminton German Open and Vietnam Open and Polish Open have been called off. Um, So it's in the rest of the world. They're getting there already because the threat has already been sort of documented at a much higher level than it has been in the United States. But, you know, the thing that I wonder about is like, is the, the fear of calling stuff off in this country, both the economic impact and the psychological impact, is that going to weigh on whether events do get canceled and leagues take that first step? As you said, Joel, which league is going to be the first to step up and say the risk is too great? There are so many factors, television, sponsorship, stadiums salaries still have to be paid that are going to pressure leagues not to do things. So it's going to take, I think, an extraordinary level of concern and fear to push them to call things off. The National College Players Association, which is the group that's been really pushing unionization for college athletes, put out a statement saying the NCAA should consider holding March Madness, the NCAA tournament, um, without uh, crowds present. There is precedent. Um, the 2003 Women's World Cup was moved right. from China to the United States because of SARS. And that decision was made about four months ahead of the tournament. And SARS at that point, this is a, a piece written by our friend Nick Green back when he was at uh, uh, Mental Floss. SARS had killed 400 people 
an infected 6,000 more in China and Hong Kong mostly at that point in May of 2003. They moved the tournament to the U.S. because all the facilities were in place from hosting the World Cup in 1999. The tournament went off, I think, fine, but the it, it was not, uh, you know, th- there was only one sellout for the whole tournament. It was kind of done in a pretty pell-mell sort of way. Um, it wasn't the the kind of tournament that you'd see with the kind of like advanced planning required. And, and just based on what I've read and also thinking about it logically, it just doesn't seem like you could move the Olympics. It just seems like you'd have to, it's either an off or on sort of thing. Well, I think that's what Dick Pound, IOC member, said that- it, You just have to cancel You just it. have to cancel them. And you know, you've got like the Euros in Europe, the 2020 European Soccer Championships are coming up You know, this summer. You want to go even closer? You mentioned the NCAAs. The first and second rounds of the men's tournament are scheduled to be played in Spokane, Washington. Um, there's been an outbreak in Washington and in the Seattle area. The women's regional semis and finals are scheduled for Portland. First rounds are hosted by top seeds in the women's tournament. Oregon and Gonzaga are in the top 16 right now. So decisions are going to have to be made really quickly. The one good thing about Spokane and you know having something there is that really in the middle of nowhere. So it helps that it's separated by a mountain range from yeah. Seattle and uh, uh, sure. Kings County in, in Washington. But yeah, but even so, that's still kind of too close for comfort. This is just a really old-fashioned ass development in the world. We spent a lot of time sharing pieces about how the Spanish flu in 1918 affected years and so much so that uh, in a story written by Chantel Jennings in Athletic that Michigan finished the year with a 5-0 record and uh, and it is national champions. This is it's amazing that 100 years later that we could be so thoroughly and potentially crippled by virus. You know, we're just not as advanced or civilized, I guess you'd like to think, but it's just a, seems like a really old fashioned ass problem to have. A couple of things that stood out for me in doing some of this background reading about the flu pandemic were the 1919 Stanley Cup final got called off. The series was tied and it wasn't able to be completed. The Montreal Canadiens, basically the whole team had the flu and was just unable to continue. And then one of the players eventually died in baseball a famous umpire was killed, and a lot of minor league players were were killed as well. There was some talk that was the year, um, the famous year where the Red Sox won the uh, World Series, right? Uh, behind Babe Ruth as a as a pitcher, and there was some talk about um, you know not holding uh, World Series games in Boston. They they did, um, and they did with with crowds. But if you like, go back and and read these stories and the numbers about. The numbers of people that were that died in Boston and, and Philadelphia and other cities, it is like truly mind-boggling. A story from the Philadelphia Inquirer in 2014 about sports in that city uh, mentions that 12,191 residents died in a four-week period. And so I would say don't read stories about the 1918 <laughs> flu pandemic if you don't want to uh, panic, but if you want like a kind of far out scenario of what could happen and how everything could be affected. I mean, also, Stefan, World War One was going on. This was like a pretty crazy period in our country and society. And it wasn't just the flu that was having a dramatic effect on, you know, our culture and, and sports. Right. Um, 675,000 Americans died of Spanish flu that year. So we're not there yet, fortunately. Pivoting back to our current situation, I think we're already starting to see this sort of level of awareness rise among athletes, particularly C.J. McCollum of the Trailblazers, tweeted out that 
he's not going to sign autographs anymore for the time being because of concerns. And he, he said, make sure you all washing y'all hands with soap for 20 or more seconds and covering your mouths when you cough. So public service announcements on Twitter from professional athletes who are concerned about their interaction with the general public as they should be. Yeah, and you had mentioned, sent around a thing about SARS in 2003 and how MLB had told players, wash your hands and also use your own pens for autographs. Maybe a good policy uh, uh, in general. Though some players who went to Toronto in 2003 said they were still going to go see the Lion King. You don't want to let SARS win. Professional athletes are probably the people that are least likely to have to worry. Like, even if they get coronavirus, it, it, they'll probably hold up okay. It's everybody else. And I mean, it, and in fact, if you even take that out a little bit further, people that are in good enough condition to go to a game, uh, they're probably also going to be fine. It's just who's going to be the person that's most vulnerable, that is the, the person that's likely to, to suffer the effects the most. And I, you can't imagine that there's going to be a lot of those folks that are going to be at games, going to games, or playing in games. But it's in an abundance of caution, which is something we seem to need right now since people don't wash their hands in the way that you think they would. I hope this is one of the things that stays with us as a society going forward is that you really should wash your hands um, <laughs> at all times thoroughly. One thing I read about uh, 1918, again, that really stuck with me is this uh, article, Lessons Learned from the 1918-1919 Influenza Pandemic in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Minnesota. Um, this is an, an article in the journal Public Health Reports. And the paragraph that just seems like this is totally what's going to happen reads as follows. Many sporting organizations responded negatively to closing orders. For example, in November 1918, the bowlers of St. Paul drew up a petition that requested permission to begin bowling again. Minneapolis football teams chose to ignore the ban and attempted to play against each other in front of large crowds. Police were called in to disperse the crowds and halt the games. Minneapolis teams found a way to play despite the closing order. Because Minneapolis high school football games were banned, practice games were scheduled with St. Paul teams. Everybody is just going to look for uh, a reason that they're special, that they don't have to follow the rules. Like, obviously, high school football game is, like, much too important to be canceled. And you got to, you know, get around it by scheduling a practice game with St. Paul. And bowling. You can't cancel bowling. The good news, though, from from that pandemic, Josh, was that it contributed to the banishment of the spitball from baseball. Yeah, for sanitary reasons. sanitary reasons, That's... What I read in a it wasn't the places. only reason, but it was certainly a performance reason. But uh, that was cited. We got to get one John, of the we got to get John factors. Thorne on the horn to to ask if that's true. But it, I mean, it coincided with the pandemic and the the idea, Joel. Like maybe um, the the result of 1918 was no more spitballs. In uh, 2020, the result will be more hand washing. Who's to say? We can only hope. We can only hope. Also, you know, uh, disinfecting your hotel room is something I've I've been doing for the last few years. You're ahead of the game. Yeah, that's right. Get into it, man. Now it is time for afterballs, and we mentioned at the top of the show that Galen Rupp won uh, the men's marathon trials on Saturday. The second place finisher was Jacob Riley. This will be his first Olympics. Rupp got the bronze and the marathon. In 2016, Rupp and Riley have something in common. They both had surgery for a Hagelin's deformity. Reminds me of uh, 
our old slate colleague David Hagland, who I think did not have a Hagland's deformity, but the Hagland's deformity, Stefan, is a bony protrusion on the heel that can lead to problems that one gets from bony protrusions. Yeah, the irritation. Surgery. I was reading about irritation, this. Irritation, Achilles irritation. They have to detach the heel from the Achilles and shave down the bone. Oh my God. <laughs> but. This is inspirational. If you have a Haglund's deformity, you can come back from it to make the Olympic team. In the marathon. In the marathon. All right, Stefan, what is your Haglund's deformity? On Friday night in New Haven, Connecticut, the Penn men's basketball team played Yale. Set the stage here. Crucial weekend for the Quakers. One game back in the race for the fourth and final spot in Ivy Madness the league's relatively new postseason tournament. Yale came into the game in first place, 8-2 and two in the league, 20-6 and six overall. The Eli, or the Bulldogs, or whatever they call them, they've been the most consistent and talented team in the Ivies this season. There was even talk of a two-bid Ivy if Yale lost in the final of the tournament. Penn, though, had already beaten Yale at the Palestra in Philly. They had a sweep in the bag, on the road, up 73-63 with the ball, 139 to go. Here's how things went from there. Penn turnover, foul, Yale free throws, 73-65, 138 to go. Penn missed free throw, Yale three-pointer, 73-68. Penn turnover, Yale missed three. Penn turnover, Yale layup, 73-70, 55 seconds to go. Penn turnover, Yale free throws, 73-72, 51 seconds to go. Penn missed layup, Yale missed layup. Penn turnover, Yale dunk. 74-73, Yale is winning, 13 seconds left. Penn turnover, Yale dunk, 76-73, five seconds left. Penn turnover, Yale turnover, Penn missed three, game. That's seven turnovers, one attempted free throw, and two attempted shots in the final minute and a half that began with a win probability of 97.9%. Daily Pennsylvanian student newspaper columnist Theo Papazekos called it astounding and probably the worst minute and a half Penn has played under coach Steve Donahue. I'd go further and say it was probably the worst minute and a half Penn has played at any time, under any coach, Penn's choke job even merited a recap by a young sports YouTuber who posts literally from his bedroom. Yale versus Penn. Craziness unfolding. Boom sauce. Boom sauce. Boom sauce, indeed. Historic collapse. Party pooper Josh Levine, though actually me about historic collapses. After that insane game in the 2016 NCAA tournament where Northern Iowa blew a 12-point lead with about a half a minute to go against Texas A&M, Josh wrote— Can we pause on that for a second? Yes. They blew a 12-point lead with like a little bit more than 30 seconds to go. I understand. I think that is underappreciated as one of the most amazing sports feats in history. I'm getting there. It was pretty amazing. Josh, I was going to credit you now as having written the definitive account of blown leads in NCAA men's basketball. All right, the A&M comeback does make the Yale comeback look like it took 99 days and not 99 seconds. The Aggies miracle broke a record of 11 points down in the final minute you reported, Canisius beating Louisiana Monroe in 2015. Josh, you also listed some other crazy comebacks. Duke down 10 with under a minute against Maryland in 2001. Miami down 10 to Virginia with less than 40 seconds in 2010. Elon down 8 to Kennesaw. State with just 16 seconds left in 2015. 
and North Carolina, trailing Duke by nine with 17 seconds to go in 1974, which is even crazier because there was no three-point shot then. All of those are what Bill James in a 2008 piece in Slate identified as safe leads that were blown. James created a formula for figuring out if a lead is safe. Take the number of points one team is ahead, subtract three, add a half point if the team in the lead has the ball, and subtract a half point if the other team has the ball. Square that. If the result is greater than the number of seconds left in the game, the lead is safe. By that math, Penn's lead against Yale... 10 minus 3 plus a half, 7.5 squared, 56.25, was not safe. So it wasn't historic. But as I pointed out to Josh, it was historic to me. (laughs) And I wasn't even watching the game, just following the increasingly frantic Twitter feeds of the Daily Pennsylvanian and Penn Basketball. So if you're a fan of either team involved in a game like that, or a player on either team, obviously, it will be instantly graphed into your long-term memory. It doesn't matter if it's a 500-pen team trying to finish fourth in the Ivy League or the Atlanta Falcons in the Super Bowl. The fail at Yale joined three other very sad moments in my Penn basketball long-term memory. One, unbeaten and third-ranked Penn losing to city rival Villanova 90-47 to in the 1971 NCAA regional finals. I was very small, but a brother was an undergrad at the time, and I could name the starting five and sing the fight song. Two, losing to Michigan State and Magic Johnson 101-69 to in the final four in 1979. And three, blowing a 27-point second-half lead to lose to arch-rival Princeton, 50-49 to in 1999. But there are lots of good memories. That is what makes sports great. Making the Final Four, beating Villanova 84-80 when I was an undergrad, beating Princeton by the pre-shot clock scores of 43-40 to and 41-39. to Key player in those games, my classmate, point guard, and current D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine. And most recently, rebounding from the historic Yale collapse damn your heuristics, Bill James, to beat Brown in Providence on Saturday, 73 to 68, and regain control of the huge race for fourth place in the Ivy League. I don't know if this will make you feel better or worse, but so it was 99 seconds and seven turnovers, right? Mm -hmm. I just working out the math, I think just to make it seem more historic, that would be a pace over a full 40-minute game for 170 turnovers (laughs) in a game. So... That's it. That makes Thank it you. seem pretty bad. That does make it seem pretty bad, and yeah. I appreciate that. Anytime. Josh, what's your Haglund's deformity? Now that our LSU football Tigers, wow, this is very kind of solipsistic afterballs, but that's, that's what you're here for. Now that our LSU football Tigers won the most recent national championship, the losses of the past sting a little less. I mean, who really cares that LSU lost 21 to nothing to Alabama? in the BCS title game in 2012 after beating Alabama 9-6 to during the regular season, then being forced into a rematch that nobody wanted to see. I certainly don't care. But since you guys brought it up, let's discuss it for a couple minutes for the final time, then we'll never speak of it again. Back in those days, there was no four-team playoff. There was just a two-team championship game, the BCS title game. And Alabama made that championship game over Oklahoma State and their immortal quarterback, Joel, Brandon Whedon. Alabama made that game by a very narrow margin, nine one-thousandths of a point. They both had one loss. Oklahoma State finished ahead of Alabama in the immortal BCS computer rankings, but behind Bama in the so-called human polls 
the USA Today and Harris Pulse, Oklahoma State would have been a clear second-place finisher if they had not lost to Iowa State in overtime. They would have finished undefeated. They would have then been sacrificed to our LSU football Tigers. But they did lose to Iowa State. It's undeniable. Um, And they lost that game because, Stefan, of a missed field goal. Well, like every missed field goal I'm responsible for? Is that what you're implying? (laughs) No, just thought your ears might perk up. You might get interested. (laughs) Oklahoma State's kicker, Quinn Sharp, who was 22 for 25 on the year in field goals, missed a 37-yard attempt wide right with a little more than a minute to go. That left the game tied. It allowed Iowa State to win in overtime. Bill Connolly wrote about that missed field goal for SB Nation in 2016, describing it as a play that changed all of college football history. Actually, Connolly wrote about more than that. He wrote about LSU's historically great season, Oklahoma State's historically great offense. But he ends the piece by noting, kind of as an aside, I'm still not sure Sharp missed that field goal, by the way. In fact, every time I watch it, I become slightly more sure he didn't. But the box score, the official record disagrees, it always will. Sharp's kick was not really wide right, even though it was reported that way. Let's listen to ESPN's Joe Tessitore and Rod Gilmore describe what they saw on the replay. Rod, I don't know that that didn't go over the upright. Just to the outside, I knew that was outside. So it's no good. All right, Stefan, Joel, you guys just watched the video. Uh, I didn't create the title of the video, and the title is in all caps. It is Oklahoma State at Iowa State, Terrible Call on FG. So you can disregard that title. Um, Joel, we'll go to you first. Did Quinn Sharp make that field goal? I think he did. It's tough to see because you can't quite see the ball, you know, go over that right upright. But it looks like it cuts inside and then drifts off to the right but that's just my opinion i can't i can't see it though it's not a perfect angle joel says he made it stefan patsis it might have hit the upright and gone through and that's the mystery oh it went over the upright he made it oh <laughs> joel yeah. is okay. joel's becoming more convinced. convinced i put my hands up i was signaling good here in the studio because you want to give the, the kicker you want to give the kicker the benefit i of the do doubt. i'm a, i'm not the best source here all right, let's go back to the afterball. So the college football rule book is unclear on how to evaluate a field goal that goes over and upright rather than between them. It just says the crossbar and uprights are treated as a line. Well, thanks a lot, uh, stupid rule book. It also says, also unhelpfully, if the ball is higher than the top of the uprights as it crosses the end line, the play may not be reviewed. As Roger Sherman noted in a 2015 SB Nation piece, Uh, about another field goal in a college game that went over and upright. That makes no sense. A kick over and upright seems like the exact perfect case in which you would want to review it. Otherwise, it should be pretty damn clear whether the ball went through if it doesn't uh, go over and upright. The NFL rules, they're more clear. A field goal is good if it goes, quote, between the outside edges of the uprights. All right, Stefan, you, you now say it's good? Okay. Also, Stefan, you might remember... Uprights in the NFL were extended from 30 feet in the air to 35 feet in the air, a rule change that was put in place at the behest of the New England Patriots in 2014 because Bill Belichick was mad that the Ravens' Justin Tucker was credited with a game-winning field goal against New England on a kick that, yes, sailed over an upright. 
In college, uprights are still 30 feet high. That Oki State field goal, still not good. And as Bill Connolly argued in 2016, if it had been ruled good, we might not have seen a college football playoff, at least for a few more years. I don't know if I'm going to say forever. But if undefeated Oklahoma State had played undefeated LSU with one lost Bama sitting at home, nobody would have had anything to complain about. You know, Les Miles would have had his second national championship. We might never have seen Coach O. Like, who, know, who knows what, what could have happened here, except for Oklahoma State winning. That wouldn't have happened. But, Joel, the LSU-Alabama All-SEC rematch, that made everyone mad for various reasons. I was mad for different reasons than, than the non-SEC uh, fan base was mad. But a few months after Alabama won the title game, the BCS was kaput. If there were higher uprights or if there were lasers on top of the uprights. I was just going to suggest <laughs> lasers on top of lasers. the uprights. Or if there were longer uprights and lasers on top of the uprights, um, the world would be a very different place. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed that Alabama LSU rematch. You were, you were the one. You were the one who enjoyed it. I was a big Trent Richardson fan. I know a lot of us don't exist anymore, <laughs> but uh, I like seeing Trent Richardson do his thing on a big stage. So. The thing that people don't remember, and then this will be honestly the last time I ever speak of this game in private or public. <laughs> the thing people don't remember about that game, they remember that the 9-6 game in the regular season was all field goals. But since it was 21-0 to in that game, people don't remember that it was 15 to nothing with five Alabama field goals. And then Trent Richardson, I believe, ran in a touchdown near the very end of the game. And then Alabama missed the extra point to give the final 21 to zero margin, which sort of obscures the fact that there were that many field goals in that game. And there were almost no touchdowns in Alabama LSU the whole season. I also was one of the few people that enjoyed that 9-6 game as well. I thought it was it was a beautiful, like just violent Excellent game. I thought that was one of the best college football games I've ever seen. All right, so. maybe Joel and I will talk about this game in private, but yeah, we, won't, we, won't, we won't subject you to it. You can you can just talk about Penn basketball while we're uh, we're talking I'm about I'm just it. thinking about lasers shooting out of the top of the uprights. As we all are. That is our show for today. Our producer this week filling in for Melissa Kaplan is Rosemary Belson. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hangup. In our bonus segment this week, we talked about Tom Brady, NFL free agent. I mean, though Hall of Fame quarterbacks have ended their NFL careers putting on the uniforms of shitty teams, I can't imagine that Tom Brady would be willing to play for the Oakland, where are they? Las Vegas next yeah. year, Raiders. That just doesn't compute. I mean, yeah, there are some athletes that can't hang it up and will prostrate themselves. So every team in the NFL play. that isn't the Patriots is bad? Well, the Raiders aren't that good. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.